0: Thank you for your continued leadership, Stephanie, and God is faithful in every season, isn't he, church? He is faithful. My Uncle Jim, uh, technically my great-uncle, he's my mom's uncle, so my great-uncle, but my Uncle Jim was a Methodist minister. His son Jerry is a Methodist minister, so that makes me the black sheep of the ministry family, and we would have uh, lots of good laughs about that. When I was a, a freshman at LSU, Uncle Jim... Uh, was diagnosed with cancer and uh, it wouldn't be very long after that that the Lord would take him on to be with him. But I remember my last visit with uh, Uncle Jim, uh, back in Leesville we kind of have this family hill and uh, my grandmother lives in one house to the left, my great aunt Stella lives in the house to the right and then up the top of the hill is where Uncle Jim and Aunt Bob, but it's a man and a woman, uh, where they need to be clear about those things uh where they they lived together at the top of the hill and and every day at three you know my my grandmother and her siblings would get together at coffee and it was just sweet memories of just sitting at that table and hearing stories tons of stories and um, the last time I, I saw my uncle Jim I came in from LSU and went up to visit with him and I sat in his living room and he was obviously weaker and smaller and but uh, still smoking his pipe. <laughs> and, uh, and the last scripture verse that Uncle Jim shared with me was, And we know all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And it's from Romans 8:28, 28. Uh, and it was a, a final word as, as I processed and, and said my goodbyes. It was his way of saying we know that all things work together for the good. We don't have to fear cancer. We don't have to fear any of these other situations. All of these work together for the good. And I was thinking about how when Uncle Jim died, you know, I was a freshman, and Casey Tingle, Casey and Stacy serve here with us. Uh, Casey ministered to me. He was uh, a senior at LSU and I was a freshman, and sitting in the parking lot there at the BCM, you know, he came out and sat in my car, and he's like, "Uh, your uncle died. He said, I heard. He said, "Uh, but these are the good ones, you know, for he's with Jesus now. No more cancer. And. So it's interesting to still be able to do life with Casey and see some of these sweet memories. You know, there's incredible thing. I am not surprised that God works providentially in our obedience. What surprises me is that God works providentially even in disobedience of folks. That's what's amazing, how amazing God is, that he can take good and he can take bad. You can have one brother who is kind of a punk and snot-nosed and tells all his other brothers, you're going to bow down to me one day. And they decide, well, we're going to sell you this day and sell their brother into slavery. And he can be lied about and put in prison, and yet God can use evil even for good and how he works these things. And it's amazing. We are going to start a series today through the book of Ruth. It's one I've been wanting to share with us. And... As we begin today, one of the things that we're going to see is that God is sovereign and he has a providence that he's working in both good and bad. The song that Stephanie has led us in is very appropriate, whether it's summer or autumn or winter or spring of our journeys. God is working and he's moving and he has this eternal plan that he's accomplishing. But many of us have known that verse that God works all things together for the good. How many of us would say and admit this morning that some things seem a little bit easier to work for the good than others? Some things we look at them and we shake our head and we say, God, how are you going to work this for the good? You know, when you're counseling someone who has just buried a child, that's probably not the verse that I would pull out right at that moment. God's going to work this for the good. Let's go get chicken. You know, that's not. I would probably stand next to that grave and just weep with them for a while. And just weep with them for a while. Knowing in the inside, God is going to work this for good. And in time, we can be that voice that reminds them of these things as we journey through the grief with them. But some things seem easier to work good for than others. Some of us have come in this room and we are keenly aware of sins or maybe even a specific sin from our past. And as we may even look back, some of us have never been able to get over that. It's amazing the number of people who come in week after week and still bear guilt. But didn't we just sing, friend? Not part of our sin is nailed to the cross. All of our sin is nailed to the cross. And as you study Ruth, one of the things that contemporary pastors point out, don't ever think that the sin of your past means there's no hope for your future. I think in Ruth 1, we see a couple of these things. We see God's providence. Over both obedience and disobedience. And the best news is the sin that we'll see in the beginning doesn't ultimately have the final word over the ending of the chapter, nor the ending of the book. And so some of you have come in here, and and maybe there's a sin that you think God cannot forgive you. Maybe there's one you're involved in now, and you need to lay down the rebellion. And you need to repent. And you need a new start. I read this week of of a football player up north who made a bad decision one day. He and his buddies were out at a bar and there was some guy who was talking some noise to them and and he made a bad decision and he punched this guy, which knocked the guy on the ground. That was the only blow he delivered. But his friends jumped on the guy and kicked him and, and caused more severe damage. This young man had already gone out to the college that he was supposed to be playing football for out in California when he got a call from the county prosecutor that, the man had died back in his hometown, and he was being charged as well as four or five of his friends. So he came back and, and was able to plead guilty because of the, the one blow that he did, and the, and the judge uh, had some leniency on him, uh, but he served a six-month prison term, and the title manslaughter was attached to his name. And uh, after he served the six-month prison service, it was amazing how no one was really interested in his football skills anymore. You you don't get a lot of good press if you bring someone convicted of manslaughter to your football program. So uh, they were all gone. But there was someone from Jackson State in Mississippi who had known of this guy. And said, why don't you come down here? Here's a white quarterback who's now being recruited by a historically black college. And so he went through a process. And you've got to love his mother because at one point when he came down, he, he called his mom and was crying, which I don't believe because football players don't cry. I think that was an embellishment on the journalist. But he's crying, and you've got to love his mom. She says, either get in the car or get to the football field, but don't call me again. Some of you are like, well, that wasn't tender. Sometimes we need that type of tenderness from a mom, and he stuck it out. And it's interesting, the football team calls him White Tiger. (laughs) I'm trying to figure why. But uh, it has been a story of redemption in many ways, of a new beginning, despite whatever the tag was on his name from the past. And I love that we've sung songs that say, we belong to Jesus. No matter what the tag was, friend, lust, lying, cheating, envy, gossip, or all of them, that is not the tag that stands over us. Forgiven. And a new beginning. And as Ruth begins in Ruth 1, what we're going to see is it's a tough time. I think there's disobedience by the Father. But it ends with the reminder that there's a barley harvest back home and a new beginning. So I'll ask you to stand. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We'll just read the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for your word. God, there's nothing better for your people than your word. Father, we need ears to hear and eyes to see. Would your spirit anoint the preaching of your word? Would you help us to see how this passage begins and yet how you will bring it to a conclusion? That's in accordance with your eternal plan for salvation and redemption, and a promised Savior in a bloodline, and of a grandson named David. Father, I pray that you would speak now to your people. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. As we encounter the first chapter of Ruth today, it, which means we'll get out by 2 o'clock. We want to divide it into four parts and the first part is a faithless father in the verses that we've read uh, I want us to begin by analyzing them and under the topic of a faithless father Here's what's happening outside of Elimelech. So Naomi has a husband And her name is his name is Elimelech, which means God is my king. What does Elimelech mean? Good so uh, as the story begins, there's some things that are happening outside of Elimelech's home. Here's what's happening in their nation. It says in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Well, in the days when the judges ruled, if we're not familiar with how this text plays out, obviously Ruth follows right behind what book? Judges, all right? So Ruth follows right behind Judges, and part of the reason it's been ordered in our English translations is because in the days when the Judges ruled, it just tags along. Here's an example of some other things that were going on when the Judges were ruling. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth actually follows Proverbs 31. As Proverbs 31 is this virtuous woman. And so Ruth is actually ordered behind Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible. But here in English, we have it here. And if you know, want to know what it was like when the judges ruled, just turn back to the, the last verse in the book of Judges. Just for me, that's one page. Turn back and see how Judges ends. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How many of you know that sounds like Chaos. It sounds rough. God would raise up a judge, and that judge would rule well. But then, when the judge would die, the people would just go their separate ways, and you had this, you had this uh, ebb and flow, ebb and flow, constant obedience, disobedience. So, while this story of Ruth is taking place, you have this guy Elimelech, who is a Judahite. He's from Bethlehem, and he is, uh, he is going to be in this time period when the judges are ruling. But everyone's kind of doing their own thing, which means there was division, there's cruelty, there's apostasy, there's even civil wars. You go back and you read through Judges and be encouraged in your quiet time sometime this week. It also says that there was a famine in the land back in verse 1 of our text in Ruth. The question is, why was there a famine? And if you'll hold your place in Ruth and turn back to Leviticus. We're getting all kinds of good Old Testament today. And turn back to Leviticus Chapter 26. There are blessings for obedience and there's punishment for disobedience. God was clear about this to his people all along in the past. In Leviticus chapter 26, it says this beginning in verse 18. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So there's a famine in the land. Most of the time the reason the famine was in the land is because there was disobedience in the people. And God was punishing them. God wasn't going to reward their disobedience. He was going to punish them. In Deuteronomy chapter 28. Just keep turning back to the right now. In Deuteronomy chapter 28. You have these covenant promises. Blessings for obedience. Curses for disobedience. They go back and forth. And uh, at one point. There's a there's one group that's reading and one group that's responding on these two mountains as they go back and forth. It's a pretty incredible picture. And then it's amazing how quickly they all forget it when they went away from there. But in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, beginning verse fifteen, it says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you're destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you've forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. How many of you would write this down somewhere and ponder it? Here's what God is saying He's going to do mildew, first of all. All right. I see the word wasting disease, fever, and inflammation. I don't know what's all involved, but it sounds scary enough. You know, I'd be like, I don't know, honey. Let's obey today. All right. I don't want pestilence. So, uh, verse 23 The heavens over your head shall be bronze, the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So all of this to say, here's what's going on when Ruth opens. They're living in a land in which the people are disobeying God. And a part of the disobedience, a consequence, is famine that is happening to them. And uh, I, I would say here, you know, poor leadership always leads to devastating consequences. That's what's happening outside of his home. Poor leadership in the nation as they've come into this promised land poor leadership is leading to these devastating consequences of famine and things that are happening. That's what's going on outside of Elimelech's house. But here's what goes on inside this house. It says this back in Ruth one in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Now, I, I don't know Uh, exactly how they chose to name these kids, but one means sickness and one means dying, you know? And I just don't know how you send that out on the birth announcement, you know? It's like, hey, we welcomed in the world eight-pound baby. His name's dying. (laughs) Yay! I don't know exactly how these names uh, were picked for them, but those were their names. So you think yours is tough, Ted. Uh, At least you're not Malon. So... What happens? They go with their sons, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. Do you know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. Interesting, isn't it? The one from the house of bread goes where he thinks he can find it. We'll see some things. Here's what's happening inside of Elimelech's home. The same thing outside. Poor leadership led to devastating consequences. Elimelech is the leader of his home, and his leadership is going to have devastating consequences. I wonder today how many women are in difficult circumstances because of poor spiritual leadership of their husbands. I wonder how many women and children are in difficult circumstances today because of poor spiritual leadership of their husbands. And I would say something else to us. The condition of our country does not have to be the condition of our home. The condition of our country does not have to be the condition of our home. You see in judges all around them, in their land... People were rebelling against God. It didn't mean they had to be inside Elimelech's home. What we go on to see is what Elimelech did. And I put on the outline there for you, Warren Rearsby. Just put a couple things that I thought were pretty clear. And so I put them on the outline for you. He says, here's what Elimelech does. First of all, he walks by sight and not by faith. You know, and I understand on one part, you want to feed your family. And so he hears, look, there's not food here. Let's go to Moab. There's food over there. But in doing that, he's walking by sight, not by faith. The second thing he does is he majors on the physical, not the spiritual. A third thing is he honors the enemy and not the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. He is in God's land with God's people. He is now choosing to go to God's enemy in that land. Moab, the Moabites came about because of Lot and his daughter. And they were enemies of God. And as they would head from Egypt to the wilderness, uh, the Moabites would attack God's people. They were clearly God's enemies. So what elimelech is doing is taking his family and putting them in the territory with god's enemies you know there's one thing i would say to us here too if you aim at sin you'll probably hit it you know so we want to aim at christ and honoring him and the interesting thing is we we never intend to stay in rebellion probably as long as we do right we think it's probably just going to be a moment it says that they intended to sojourn there but we find out later they've been there they stay for 10 years they stay for 10 years This is what's happening in his home. Here's what I believe Elimelech should have done. I believe he should have led his country towards repentance rather than leave his country. Even if he were the lone wolf, he should have been the one saying, you know why there's famine? Because we're disobedient. He should have been the one leading the rest of them to repentance rather than leaving his country. I think a second thing is he should have looked to God rather than himself. He should have looked to God rather than himself. Elimelech finds a solution he doesn't seem to pause and ask if that's God's solution. Elimelech means, My God is my king, but I think his decisions reveal who really is his king. He's making decisions on his own. Here's a couple of lessons that I think we can learn. They're there on your outline. The first one if we choose to trust ourselves more than God, we should not be surprised by the consequences. We shouldn't be surprised where we end up. If we put our trust in, in all our accumulated years of knowledge rather than trusting the ancient of days, we shouldn't be surprised where that leads us. Isn't it interesting that they fled the famine, I'm guessing because they wanted to escape death. How'd that work out for them? It worked out pretty bad, right? Here's the heart issue that I think is at the root of this passage. It's the question This is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? I want you to hold your place here, and I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles, which is to the right, chapter 20. I think this is the root issue uh, with Elimelech. Is God trustworthy? And then do we trust him? So if it's you and your family needs food and there's a famine in the land, do you think it's your job to, to come up with a solution? Or do you think that you should consult God and see what his solution is and the issue is can we trust god or do we need to scratch and claw and and do these things for ourselves i love second chronicles chapter 21 because jehoshaphat is there and most people (laughs) and just use the phrase holy jehoshaphat right you've heard these phrases he really was holy he was a man who had great confidence in the lord here's what he says in second chronicles chapter 20 it says this after this the moabites does that sound familiar and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. And I'm like, well, why didn't you write in Gedi? Why would I have to say the other words? Then Jehoshaphat, here's what I love, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if I'm a king, and I find out that three armies are rallied against us, I'm grateful this is in the text. I'm grateful for the transparency that we see in Scripture. It says, Jehoshaphat was afraid. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. You see, there's a difference between Jehoshaphat and Elimelech. He set his face to seek the Lord. You're going to see that phrase again. And proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Three times, seek the Lord, seek help from the Lord. Seek the Lord. You see it? And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you. In it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold the men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit." O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love this chapter. I love it because there are these three armies that are coming. And we see Jehoshaphat, and he's got some great theology. He says, God, I understand you're sovereign over all things. He said, I also understood that when we came into this land, you told us to stop at this point, and we didn't drive these out. And now because we didn't drive them out because you told us not to. We're being rewarded by them. They're trying to drive us back out of the land. And he said, we don't know what to do and we're afraid, but we're going to set our eyes on you. We know that you will be our salvation. So here's what happens. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zachariah, son of Beniah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. I love that when I say one of your names, I don't have to tell you great-granddaddy's name at the same time. I do appreciate that. All right? He said, listen, all Judah inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then what? The reaction. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. All Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So, how do you think it's going to turn out? God says, "You don't have to fight. I'll fight for you. How, do you." how do you think it's going to turn out? Yeah, God fought And incredible. The three armies that were coming against them. If you keep reading, you're going to find out those three armies turn on each other and destroy each other. Here's where I think Elimelech failed. Back in Ruth, friends, we don't want to put our confidence in us. We want to put our confidence in the Lord. And when the situation seems sketchy and we don't know what to do, let us not run to our own counsel. Let us run to the counsel of the Lord. Let us seek the Lord rather than trying to find the solution in our own. But if you choose to trust yourself, don't be surprised where you end up. That's the only thing. Here's the second thing. Lessons to learn from Elimelech in, in these first five verses. The decisions of a father will long outlive him. The decisions of a father will long outlive him. Uh, Here's what we find out. So Elimelech dies, right? Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. So Elimelech is dead, but he has led his family to a foreign land, which now has a consequence that his two sons marry foreign women which was strictly prohibited by the Lord. And so what I want to say to our fathers today is that we need to model faithfulness, not fearfulness. We need to model faithfulness, not fearfulness, that we trust the Lord in realizing our decisions, both good and bad, will long outlive us. There are things that my dad decided that still affect me today, good and bad. And so the decisions of a father will long outlast him. Let it be that many of those are because of obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. This is what we model. At the end of the decade of disobedience, so they're there in 10 years, when verses 1 through 5 end, here's what we find. All that we have left are three lonely widows, three Jewish graves, and a heathen land. And that's where we should probably pause and say, how can good come from this? I think that Elimelech led his family in disobedience to go to this foreign land rather than trusting God. How can God bring good from disobedience? And then on top of that, you have a wife who Elimelech was the leader. So now Naomi finds herself in a place where her husband brought her. Her two sons are dead. How many of you know that she probably felt alone and probably some fear? So that gets us to the second picture in this chapter, a frustrated mother. You have a faithless father, but a frustrated mother. Here's what happens in the rest of the verses, beginning verse 6. Then she... Naomi arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters in law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, "Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me." Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 19. Ruth and Naomi are going to return to Bethlehem. And here's what it says. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Marah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. If I went away full, I I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and pretend to say, you bury a husband and two sons, and you're going to be supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Sometimes the providential decisions of the Lord are very difficult to deal with, aren't they? Aren't they? But we have uh, a mother in this point that's very frustrated and very bitter and goes against even what her name means. I want to point out a couple things to you. First of all, what Naomi got right, what I believe she got right. The first is, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. We can't stay in disobedience and expect God's blessing. I think the first thing Naomi does is she moves back towards God's people. She hears that God has returned his favor on them. He's blessing them. So she doesn't stay in Moab and the land that's not his, dealing with these other folks. We can't stand disobedience and expect God's blessing. John Stamm was uh, killed. Uh, he and his wife Betty were killed in uh, China in their early 20s, serving as a missionary couple, and they left a baby that was only a few months old, uh, literally on the side of the road with a $10 bill and a blanket uh, as they were on their way to be executed. His brother would later be at a conference with another speaker and and folks were praying and they were praying, God bless this, bless this thing, bless this. And John Stems' brother Jacob simply prayed said, God, we've asked you to bless a lot, but would you make us blessable? I remember when the towers fell down in New York City and everyone, the congressman stood on the steps and sang, God bless America. And I remember everyone was wanting God to bless America. But we act as if God's blessings are indiscriminate of our activities. Uh, God doesn't bless rebellion, friends. God doesn't bless disobedience. And there's no wonder that Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, that you have a dead husband, two dead sons, and barren women. Because it's exactly what God said he would do if you went against his way. He's not going to bless disobedience. So I think the first thing Naomi gets right is she moves back to a place of obedience. She's coming back where God's favor is. We can't stay in disobedience and expect God's blessing. Number two, Naomi knows that God is in sovereign control. She understands that it's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Even in her prayer in verses 8 and 9, she's saying, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Verse 9, the Lord grant you. And she understands that the Lord has moved in a way that's caused her to be very bitter. But she understands the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Naomi understands God's in control. I would take that theology. Number three, Naomi also understands that not all of God's providential decisions are easy. What do we do when we don't like the providential decision God's made or the suffering he's let come into our lives? You know, in Acts 12, you have John who's put to death, but Peter who lives. How do you think John's family felt about that? Or you have James. I'm sorry, you have James that's put to death. How do you think that the family's rejoicing? Now, James, son of thunder, some of them might be been, all right, thank you, Lord, we'll see you. When you come back to get us. But God makes providential decisions. And in all of these, friends, God is God. And the way that I use that teaching in Acts 12, I'll say that on some days James is put to death and on some days Peter lives, but in all days God is God. And so sometimes these decisions, though, are not the easiest to deal with. And we see Naomi's reaction. And this is what I believe Naomi got wrong. One of our contemporary pastors has said, When we have decided God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. When we have decided God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. So when they come back and they're in the town and she's just full of bitterness, she acts as if there is no hope. God is not going to bring good to this. There's nothing that can come for us. And I would say here, even that we want to be reminded, even when God disciplines us, he's not against us, friends. God is for us. He's not against us. And his discipline is an act of grace. His discipline is mercy to us, not leaving us in our place of rebellion. Look at her focus. Her focus is inward rather than upward. Look in verse 20. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Moriah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The more our focus is inward, the less it's going to be upward, and probably the more bitter the circumstance is going to be. I think this is part of what she got wrong. She says, look at what she says, The Lord has testified against me. He's brought me back empty, verse 21. When Naomi says this, the Lord has brought me back empty, I wonder how Ruth felt when she was standing right next to her. (laughs) And I find it interesting that she said, We went away full. If you were full, why'd you go? (laughs) You fool, You weren't full. You were wanting food. You were wanting these things. You go, and you come back, and the Lord brought you back empty, and here's Ruth standing right next to her. It's amazing how bitter we can come become because of our circumstances. So the question is, how do we deal with that? Here's what I believe we can learn. Oswald Chambers says, The majority of us begin with the bigger problems outside and forget the one inside. Forget what the Lord may want to change in us sometimes God's providential decisions aren't easy. We had a a judge and his wife in Leesville that uh, they had a two-year-old son that was taken from them. He died. And I can remember my mom telling me the story as I grew up of her laying across the body of that two-year-old and not being angry, not being bitter. But she said, God, thank you for the two years you gave him to us. Now, not all of us, that's going to be our reaction. Not all of us, that's Not where we're going to be. So the question is, how can we, how can we, when God works in a way providentially that we don't eagerly jump on, how can we bring our heart into unity with his heart? One of the first ways is just praying, God, unite my heart to yours in this. John Knight is a man who works with desiring God, and he actually has a son who was born without eyes. He's blind and he's autistic. And John Knight recounts this story he wrote a letter on the 4th of July, and he says this, it's a different sort of independence for me. On July 4th, 1995, my multiply disabled son entered the world and my life came crashing down around me and would soon include a deep and intense bitterness toward God. If a child is born this way, friends, how how did this happen? Was it an accident? Neither of you know that he knits each child together in the womb, which is just a point I would pause right here in light of the life march yesterday and in light of the sanctity of life. million abortions occur in the U.S. and Canada every year. Friends, life begins at conception. Jeremiah says he knew him before he was even in the womb. Psalm 139, you knit me together. And however we come out of the womb, friend, I assure you this, it's no accident. But sometimes it can be difficult to deal with. And that's what John Knight is saying here. He said, I never denied that God existed or is powerful I just concluded he was mean and capricious. But it also began God's work of creating affection for him and for the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I'm often astonished when thinking back that I'm now able to praise God for his goodness in giving my son his autism and blindness. That's the point we want to get to, right? But That's not always where we are. Some of you in this room may be bitter about some things today. How do we get to the point that we say, Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for even this. Thank you. How do we get there? He says, none of this happened easily or by accident. He says, I can point to five specific things that God brought to bear on my life. Faithful pastoral leadership, pastors who wouldn't let him go, pastors who would let him write whatever he wanted to write, and they weren't frightened by him. They never wavered from bringing a message of hope and absolute certainty in the sovereignty and goodness of God, even when I pushed them away. He said, you know how else? Faithful people in the church. Shortly after my son was born, we dropped everything at church, our small group, volunteering, Sunday school class, and attendance. One couple refused to let us go and loved us with a gracious, firm, consistent tenderness that made me want to understand how they could love someone like me, my wife, or my son so completely. A third thing was a faithful father. My own father was the first person in the world to understand and communicate my son's value and inherent worth as a creation of a good and loving God to me. Through 13 years, he stood with me through much pain and sorrow and joy. He says, a faithful wife. My wife and I have not walked the same path. Hers has been much harder than mine for many reasons. But by the grace of God, we are together. And I thank God every day for this woman whose spine is made of steel and who loves me and our four children. And then the last, he says, what brought him to this is the sovereignty of God as revealed in his word. I remember a particularly heartbroken, bitter email I sent Pastor John. He had every right to discipline me but instead wrapped the words of the Bible around my heart. God used those words from the Bible, among many others, to create longings I didn't have, to start a dead heart beating and to reveal when I was incapable of seeing the beauty, sufficiency, and majesty of Jesus Christ in his cross. God has done it all, and it was his word that proved decisive. Living with a boy, now a teenager no less, who will always be dependent on someone for all his needs is hard. I have a daily, often hourly fight for joy and my salvation. Yet through my oldest son's daily care, through my youngest son's premature birth, and now through my wife's ongoing battle with cancer, God is not just sustaining me, but revealing more of his goodness because he's sovereign over all these things for his glory and my good. So on this Independence Day, I'm grateful to Jesus for my real freedom in him and for giving me my boy to help me see it. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I think that's what we have to remember, friends. No matter what comes into our life, God is good, and he does good. This is what the psalmist declares. And if God has ordained these things, he has a divine purpose, and he owes you no answer. But he will provide all that you need for it. How do we not become bitter? We go to God. We look upward rather than inward. And we don't focus on the circumstance. We focus on the God who's sovereign over the circumstance and what his plans are for us through that. Frustrated mother. Let me move quickly to the last two. A fearless daughter-in-law. I love Ruth. She's incredible. Oprah was probably good too, but she went back home, you know? And I do love that it's not Oprah. Uh, Then she would be the star of this book, right? So you have Ruth, and what we find out about Ruth, and one of the questions I ask myself is, when would I have turned back? When would I have turned back? And as you begin, uh, they're released. In verses 8 and 9, she says, Look, may the Lord deal kindly with you. You guys go back home. Go to your families. And I wonder what I've been like oh, you're right, lady, I'm, I'm going to head on back. But that's not where she stops. They're like, no, we're not going to go. We're going to go on with you. And then in 11 and 12, she says, let's think about this, girls. If I were to get married, even tonight if I had a husband and I bore sons, are you going to stand around and wait for them to grow up so you can be able to have them? Are you going to hold off from marrying? Let's just look at this logically. And that worked for Orpah. She was like, good point. I'm going to go back home find me a man, you know. So she, she rolls on out, you know. In verse 13, it gets even more intense. And she says at the very end of verse 13, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord is going out against me. This is the big argument that she's saying, Look, if you hang with me, God's against me. It means he's probably going to be against you too. And so Ruth, in spite of even that, Ruth is going to move forward. And so then we see Orpah leave. But look at what Ruth does in verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And look at these words. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, of anything but death parts me from you. And this is where I wonder where Naomi was like, all right, come on. You know, it just says, says, when Naomi saw that, she was determined to go with her. She said, no more. You know, Naomi's like Alright, we'll be miserable together. A bunch of ladies just miserable. So <laughs> I want you to see what what Ruth really does, and she is an incredibly courageous woman. Naomi painted the future very dark. This is what a contemporary pastor said. Naomi painted the future very dark, and Ruth took her hand and walked into it with her. Man, how I many you know that's what we need in the church? Those are the kinds of relationships we have to have. It's bleak, there's no sign of hope. Ruth, I mean, there was no sign of hope in Naomi's eyes. It's hopeless, Ruth. Ruth's like, well, let's get on to it. Let's go on. And I would say to you that that sovereign God we've been talking about is the one who brings Ruth to these conclusions. This is what it means. I put the list there for you. It means leaving her own family and land. It means, as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness because Naomi has no man to give her. And if she married a non-relative, Ruth's commitment to Naomi's family would be lost. Third, it means going to an unknown land with new people and new customs and new language. Fourth, it was a commitment even more radical than marriage because she says, if you die, I'm going to die there. And where you're buried, if you die before me, Naomi, I'm not going back. I'm still going to stay there. That's how committed I am, and I'm going to be buried where you're buried. She will never return home, not even if Naomi dies. And then the final part, your God will be my God. Naomi's experience of God was bitterness, but in spite of this, Ruth forsakes her religious heritage and makes the God of Israel her God. Man, this is an incredible picture of God's providence at work. God has not abandoned Naomi, though she feels that way. We shouldn't trust feelings, friends. We should trust God's promises. He has not abandoned her. He's provided a daughter-in-law who says, whatever's coming, we're going to walk through it together. What an incredible picture. Let's close then with the final part of this chapter, a faithful God. You see a faithless father and a frustrated mother, a fearless daughter-in-law. We see a faithful God. You know, the truth is God owes Naomi nothing. Yet she receives unmerited favor. You realize Elimelech, when they made these decisions and they chose to walk in rebellion, God doesn't owe her anything, nor us. But as you see in verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And you see in verse 22, Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There's a couple things that God provides. First, God provides family. Ruth is there. She's clinging to her. Nothing's going to separate that. He provides food. He has blessed his people. Whether they have repented and brought this about, God has brought food into that land. It's the beginning of barley harvest. And number three, God provided forgiveness. You have to look at the very end of Ruth. Turn over to uh, chapter four. I hate to spoil it for you, but in a few weeks, we're going to find out that Ruth will marry again. And she will have a son. And the son is going to be named Obed. And at the end of verse 17, it tells you that Obed is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And there's going to be an incredible picture here of God's providence that Elimelech, I think, goes in disobedience to this land yet brings back a woman who will ultimately be in the lineage of God because God in his providential plans and the way they were and this woman who deserves no grace yet receives it. That's why this unmerited favor is here. Who would have imagined that in the worst of all times, the period of judges, God was quietly moving in the tragedies of a single family to prepare the way for the greatest king of Israel. Let me close with some application for us here. Though we may be faithless some of the time, God is faithful all the time, friends. God is faithful all the time. The unmerited favor of the Lord never grows old to wretched sinners, keenly aware their rebellion and its deserved consequences. I was just walking through our neighborhood last night, walking our dog, and while I was out there, I was just meditating on this. Their family starts in rebellion and yet still receive a gracious new beginning from the Lord, a gracious new opportunity. That's unmerited favor. That's God loving just because I choose to love. That is an incredible picture of grace. So instead of Naomi just dying alone, which she deserved, God steps in and gives unmerited favor. This is an incredible picture of the gospel and grace to us. God is fulfilling his eternal plan, utilizing both the obedience and disobedience of humans. And as this passage closes, I would remind us where we started. Don't ever think that the sin of your past means there is no hope for your future. And I would close with this story. And Stephanie is going to come. We want to have a time to respond. I want to give you a chance to respond to some questions. But let me leave you with this last picture as we close out Ruth 1. Do you remember when Jesus was praying and uh, he tried to get Peter and James and John to pray with him? Do you remember that? And before that even takes place, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to betray me three times. And Peter says, I would never do it. Even if everyone else does, I would never do it. But I love what Luke records. Jesus says, you're going to do it. But then he says, when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. I love that there's a picture of grace even in Jesus' pre-answer. And as it carries out, we know what Peter does, right? He goes in and he denies the first time. And then he just escalates his denial up to the second and the third time till he weeps bitterly. And so one of my favorite pictures is after the resurrection of Christ and he's on the shore and the disciples have been out fishing and the disciples see and they realize it's Jesus on the shore. And I love what Peter does. He he puts back on his outer cloak and he just jumps in the sea, you know, I love Peter because sometimes he's an idiot, you know, sometimes he's impulsive. And, and I was like, could you really get there faster than the boat? I don't know how that works, but. I can just imagine Peter jumps out. He's like, Jesus, you know, and he's swimming. The guys in the boat are like, Peter, what are you doing? You know? So they all have to wait for Peter to catch up, you know. And so he had good intentions, bless his heart. And so he comes to that shore, though. I just really can't imagine the Jesus who knew the wretched denials and the extent of the denials and standing there. And Jesus gently and graciously says, Peter, do you love me? feed my sheep Peter do you love me tend my lambs Peter do you love me yes Lord you know I do feed my sheep and Jesus reinstates Peter in the way that he said he was and it was a new beginning for Peter Peter would never be the same beyond that beyond Pentecost and we know we believe one day Peter would ultimately be led and perhaps be crucified upside down even for the sake of Christ. But it was that new beginning, and it wasn't the rejection of Jesus, the denial of Jesus that would be the last word spoken over Peter. It was the grace of Christ Jesus that would be spoken over Peter. And so I love that Ruth begins with, I believe, disobedience and rebellion and lack of faith. But as we end chapter 1, there's a new beginning. And you know why? Because God is faithful. Because God is gracious, because God is merciful. God rescues us from our own wretched self and works good for all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things work for the good. I want to give you a chance to pray this morning, just quickly here as we close out. By asking three simple questions, I'll ask our elders and Kevin to come forward. Three questions. Anyone need a new beginning today? Anyone need a fresh start today? Anyone need to just come clean with our sin and our rebellion and say, I'm owning up to it, Lord, and I need your forgiveness. Come receive a new beginning, friends. Here's question two. Anyone need to turn from yourself and toward God? Anyone need to say that all I'm looking at is myself and the circumstances and my language is me, 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 and I, I, I? Turn to God. And number three, anyone in the midst of a difficult time and just need prayer this morning? Anybody journeying through something and you'd say, I just want someone to bear this with me. We just want to make these men available. Stephanie's going to lead us in one song. Make uh, a time available for you to respond. And then after this, we'll close out with our announcements. We'll go back out of here. But before we do, we need to yield anything to the Lord, friends? Father, we praise you. I've praised you so much for this passage. I've been wanting to weep all day because you are a God who's gracious. And the sins of our past are not the final words spoken over us. It is your grace and mercy that is spoken over us. And so, God, this is why I love your word, because we don't see perfect people. We see people sometimes that doubted and didn't have faith and tried to find an answer themselves. God, I pray you would raise men in this church that would not be like Elimelech. We would not be fearful and try to find our own solution, but we would be faithful fathers who would lead our children when there's no food, we would lead our children to look up and trust the God that provides. The God that does not let his people starve. Father, I pray that we would not be those who are walking in rebellion and yet expecting your blessing simultaneously. That we're not those that are doing what we think is right with disregard for what you say is right and then expect you to just pour out blessing upon blessing Father, remind us what we've seen the past three weeks, that holiness matters. And that we are to be the church that walks in holiness. And there is blessings in obedience. Father, I pray that this tenacious girl named Ruth and what you worked in her, that she would be willing to leave family. She would be willing to leave what she knew. And she would be willing to commit in such a way that even if Naomi died, she would be buried there with her. Father, that we would have such commitment to one another, that we would have such courage that you give us, that we would go anywhere for the sake of the gospel. Father, I pray more than anything else, the star of this chapter is not Naomi or Ruth, it's you. And God, sometimes you make providential decisions and they are tough to deal with. So God, thank you that even when you make the decision, you don't leave us alone in it, but you are our only hope for being sustained through it. So, God, there's some today who may need to cry out. They may be bitter like Naomi. They may say, I want to be called Mara because I'm bitter. God, would you allow them to cry out to you today and find that you are a God who works all things together for the good. Thank you that this chapter ends and Naomi's not alone. There's Ruth standing next to her. And the barley harvest is beginning. There's provision. And there's going to be a king named David who comes through this line. And he is going to cover the rebellion that we see in the beginning of the chapter. His sacrifice is what allows this book to carry through. Now please let the gospel be rich in our hearts. Please let us trust you as our sovereign God. And let us find you to be good and to do good in all things. Father, however, we need to respond to your text this morning. Move us by your spirit, but don't let us walk out of here and just go to lunch. And have no regard for your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen.